Hi, this is Kristen Regal. And this is Paul Rock. And welcome to the Common Room Podcast. Um, every Sunday at 1045, we gather together to talk about life and spirituality, about the common experiences we share, as well as some of the questions we wrestle with. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope to see you some Sunday at 1045. And so, even before we start to talk about sex and sexuality in the church, there's some of us that might think, I mean, just the church is screwed up. It's, it's always done wrong. It's always taught bad. It's not a helpful place. And I think if we just look over here, we could say, yeah, clearly there have been hurtful things that the church has taught, but there's also a lot of good stuff. I mean, I can tell you, as one person, I, I grew up in a church that, I mean, I didn't know anything different that, than it was okay for men to love men and women to love women. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that I thought was just normal until I kind of got later into high school and college and started to realize that there's Christians that believe different than me. So um, there's things about, yeah, you're going to be loved no matter what. You know, stories, I mean, I, the reason I'm a feminist is because of the church. Um, my mom was always my Sunday school teacher. I had female pastors ever since I was a little guy. Um, so there, there's good things at the church. So we can't, what we want to do is just be careful that we don't just say all this or all that because that's typically not true and that's not fair. And even some of these conversations we were having about here, about how we, how we dissect things. And so the, the thing that, that, um, that I think it's helpful for us to agree upon before we go into this is along those lines is that there's actually, it's more beautiful and it's actually more helpful to have different experiences and expressions and perspectives on the same issue than just one or the other, Right? That, that there is something beautiful and more rich about the diversity of experiences and ideas and perspectives in talking about one thing than it is to just have one voice. And yet, I think all of us have kind of got this thing. We just kind of want to know what's right, what's wrong. How do you believe about this? What is the, what's the right way to perceive or to think? And, and I, think, I just want us to say kind of out loud that we recognize that's not right. You know, most of the time, the best thing is actually to have multiple perspectives so that you can see things differently. And in that, you become a better person. And I would say theologically, as we're talking about things that have to do with ourselves and faith, we experience God, a fuller understanding of God, a more glorious and gracious and diverse experience of God. Um, what, I, what I want to talk about this morning is, um, is kind of dive into both the goodness and the, the struggles that we've had in the church and specifically in the Bible. And so I want to talk about sex from the beginning. And to talk about sex from the beginning, it's, it's helpful for us to turn to uh, Genesis. So if you want to, I'm going to read from Genesis and you can just listen to me if you want to. But if you, if you would like a hard copy to read to, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. And so if you're interested, anybody want to, want to look? So I'm just gonna I'm gonna read through a couple of passages from Genesis one and two, and uh, that I think kind of highlight, um, and then and then for a little bit further in Genesis and Exodus, highlight both the the beauty and the blessing of our faith and tradition upon our sexuality, our genderedness, um, our our um, maleness and femaleness, uh, and then the things that have been uh, not so helpful in that regard. So I'm gonna start reading in Genesis chapter one verses twenty six. Right. So this is a text that we share together with both Jewish and, um, um, and Muslim uh, our brothers and sisters who, who re- recognize the, the first five books of the Bible as being authoritative in one way or another. So Genesis 1.26 says this. 
God is, God is making creation, and then God gets to the point where God is making um, humans. And, and if you recognize in Genesis 1, God speaks of God's self in the plural. It's always like we, right? right? And we will create them. The thing that I love about that is that from the very beginning, we've got a non-binary God who creates us not as one, but as part of a multitude of creation, and then in this spectrum of male-femaleness. And so within our very Godhead, before the story even starts, we have a recognition that there is this diversity. So, in Genesis 1.26, God is saying, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they might take charge of the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and the earth and the crawling things on earth. And then God created humanity in God's own image and in the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. This, um, um, idea of the image of God, the divine image, is something that we have as humans said that that's what makes us different than the rest of creation, than plants or squirrels or whatever. That there's something about the image of God in us. And, um, and you can agree or disagree with that, but taken that the, the, the Bible has been very formative in, in uh, both Hebrew and, and Christian thought for the last couple thousand years, that idea of what we call, it's called the Imago Dei, the image of God. In Latin, it's the Imago Dei. The image of God is something that people have talked about a lot. What is the image of God in humanity? What makes us different and special? And some people would say, argue very forcibly that it is our ability to rise above our emotions and to think rationally about things. And scientifically, that is how we are the most like God. That's where the Imago Dei is the most um, fully reflected in who we are. Other people have said it is our intuition and our feelings and our ability to relate, which is different than other creatures that makes us more like the image of God. The thing is that right here in, in Genesis 1, 26, it's pretty clear that God made humans in the image of God, and then it says male and female, God created them. So that the image of God in us is our male-femaleness, is our genderedness. So like from the very beginning, God says, and it's not male or female, it's male and female. So male and female, God created us. And the way I interpret that is there might be I'm assuming Larry identifies as male, Darcy identifies as female, but there's also within each one of us parts of us that are kind of on that spectrum a little bit, right? So the whole male-female thing, God created us in that image, and that reflects the image of God, not just singularly, but in relationship with each other. And so we are, it says in the very beginning, when God created us, there was this confusion. It would have been really easy if God just said, and God created, you know, like one creature. In fact, in the next creation story in Genesis 2, God does create one creature, and we'll see how that goes. But it's within this relationship and this, this kind of spectrum of maleness and femaleness that God creates humanity and says that is the image of God, which I think is just really helpful. It's really confusing. It's, it's not as straightforward as you'd like it to be, but once again, I think in the diversity, we actually get a better idea of the beauty and the mystery of God. And then God blesses them. Sorry, go ahead. Me that even in that, like that our minds want to say, we can then now separate. Okay, he, God, God created male and female, yep. and that should mean all cookie cutter. They're all the same, but we know that's not true. Right. And so even within that creation, yep. there's total diversity. Yep. We know that doesn't mean we yep. think that all men are the same and all women are exactly the same. Right. Exactly. It's complicated. It's complicated. It's complicated. Uh, and, and again, just to be honest. Everybody, there's this thing that we talk about when you're, a, when you're a biblical scholar, you're supposed to learn Hebrew and Greek and German and all these kind of things so that you can read the text in its original language and you can do what's called exegesis. I can, I can understand objectively what the author was saying. 
And what we've come to understand over years, and one of the things you're never supposed to do, what I was taught in seminary, is never perform eisegesis. That means you are reading your perspective into the text. Don't do that. Only perform exegesis, where you pull out of the text the original meaning. And you do that through scholarship, learning original languages. Well, the fact of the matter is, I've had a penis my entire life. I've been a man who grew up in North America my entire life with an over-educated, middle, upper-middle-class family. So there's no way that I can perform exegesis and pull exactly. Anything that I do is going to be eisegesis. Anything that I do is going to reflect my perspectives, my background, whatever. And so whenever you hear someone say, oh, no, this is what the Bible says, you've got to stop them and say, no, that's actually what you say the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible has no larynx. The Bible has no lips except ours, right? So that comes to both those of us who interpret the scripture. We have to recognize that and be humble in that, but also recognize that God didn't come down in some sort of pen and write the Bible. It was written through the hands of the people of the time. And we believe that the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, people say, I don't necessarily believe this, but the tradition is it was written by Moses, right? So Moses would have been a male who was raised in Africa and in the Middle East at a certain time. And so did some of him come through in his culture and his history in the writing of the text? Of course it did. And so part of the challenge of reading the scripture is both understanding my filters and the filters of the person that's writing it. So yeah, we try to, I try to what we call decolonize or liberate this text from centuries of very male-dominated Western interpretations. So that's why it's so nice to have women of color and LGBTQ folks and those read the scriptures so they can bring a different perspective. But the fact of the matter is, there's a lot that's in our Bible that is just plain old patriarchal, unhelpful, binary. It's just there. And so that's where we pray, dear Jesus, help us. Spirit of the living God, help us to read with wisdom beyond the words themselves as to what you're speaking to us. Yes, sir. No, I was just noticing on the board, you know, everything was polarized in this discussion. We've got good and bad. Yeah, yeah, here. yeah. We've got nothing in the middle. Yeah. You know, when we talk about a gradient and yep. you know, accepting and all that kind of stuff, it just seems to me that on this particular subject, you know, it's just going to be left and yeah. right. Yeah. And opinions are going to deeply go into how you perceive the subject. And as much as the roof over your head, this is a real liberal church, but if this was a real conservative church, oh, yeah. that, that would look very different. different Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks. Good point. Yeah, even the way we frame this conversation is maybe not necessarily helpful. Thanks, Maggie. Way to go. <laughs> it was me. I was my, <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. So the, the idea, the exogesis, is that the word? Exogesis? So ex, ex, to exegete means you pull exegesis, out of the text yeah. the objective truth. Yeah. That's a good word. Um, you know, the idea is outside of what we've been taught to believe and whether our opinions of that are good or bad. What is the human experience that we're having? Yep outside of culturally conditioned beliefs. Yep, yep. And what would that be like? Would yep. we be monogamous, for example? Yeah, right. Yep, yep. In fact, if, if Kristen was here, she would tell you she just was away for two weeks and she's working on her doctorate. And she brought her idea for her dissertation to uh, this professor, this woman who's going to be her um, doctor mother, whatever you call it, the person who kind of the faculty that walks with you through the process, and who is an uh, older, I think in her 70s, African-American woman, been a scholar, biblical scholar for years. And Kristen came to her with an idea, and she basically said, mm, no, it's not a good idea. Uh, because basically what you are doing is you are taking the text as it is, and you are trying to interpret it as it is. She said, we have moved beyond that. We've got to understand the lived experiences of marginalized people and, and honor that 
and make that beautiful and special and holy before we take that to the text. Because if we don't, we will be colonized by the text because it's too powerful. Because of its centuries of power, it will colonize and overwhelm us. And so we've got to take time before you do that to know your own story, to understand where you came from so that you can bring that and it can be this collaborative um, interaction with, with the Word of God, which is, I think, brilliant. It would have gotten me an F uh, if I had done that in seminary uh, 30 years ago. Um, so please interrupt me. Raise your hand, and hopefully I'll see it. But I, these, are, these comments are great. Um, so, but I'm just going gonna, gonna, gonna to keep going here. The other thing that, that, that um, is interesting is we, we move into Genesis chapter 2, and we've got an entirely new telling of the, of the, of the creation story. It's as if um, the person who wrote the creation story in chapter 2 didn't even know the creation story in chapter 1. Those people who were editing the Bible said, you know, this is a really good one, but that's a really good one. You know, let's just put, put them both in there. Um, and that's what they do. They live side by side, and they don't necessarily complement each other. They're a little bit contradictory. In fact, if you continue to read in the scriptures, in Job, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in the Psalms, especially Psalm 104, you get into John chapter 1, where Jesus, as the Logos, the Word of God, is there in creation. You get to Revelation chapter 2, 22, where it says there will be a new creation, and God will be with us, and there will be no more tears. There are like 15 different creation stories in the Bible. So if someone ever says to you, yeah, but in the creation story, you have to say, wait, but which creation story are you talking about? And again, the diversity of those creation stories that are written by poets or whoever, or prophets, or it, it, it's, it's interesting, it's beautiful, uh, it's confusing. Um, but even within the first two chapters of Genesis, we get two different stories, right? So we do not have just one, there's not one story, because we know one story uh, can be par- powerfully problematic. Um, so in, in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18, it says this, Then the Lord God said, so God, let me, let me start over. In Genesis chapter 2, it talks about God creating a human out of um, the earth. So it's not, it's different than chapter 1 story. And God takes, uh, just creates a, a human out of the topsoil, it says, of the earth. So the best dirt, right? When people say dirty, I think sometimes you guys say, isn't dirt good? Like good dirt. Like shouldn't we all be dirty? We are actually dirty. From dirt you have come and to dirt you shall return, right? That's what we say Ash Wednesday. Um, but that the, the um, God in the second verse is more, more like a gardener in, in chapter 2. And God creates, and it's, it says um, uh, Adam. The Bible says God created Adam. But it's actually not Adam. You guys have probably heard me say this before. The Hebrew word is ha'adam. And ha'adam is the word for earth, earth creature. And so the first creature that God creates is just called an earth creature. Um, and we anglicize it and, and gender it and call it Adam. So that's... Okay, that's a layer we already put on top of the text. So in, in, in chapter 2, God creates Ha'adam and then gets to the point where he says, it's just not good for humans to be alone. It's not good for you to be alone. And so in, in, in chapter 2, starting in verse 18, it says, I'll, I'll make him a helper that is perfect. So God created from the fertile land animals, birds of the sky, but a perfect helper, helper was nowhere to be found. So God put the human to sleep into a heavy, deep sleep. And my interpretation of this, one of my seminary scholars' friends um, said, it's, it's, it, God euthanizes the first uh, creature. It didn't work. And God took out of the ribs uh, a rib and closed up the flesh. And when the rib was taken from the human, the Lord God fashioned that and made woman and brought woman to the other human being. And the, woman's, and the, and the human then said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then in verse 24 and 25 of chapter 2, it says, and this is the reason that a man leaves his father and mother, embraces his wife, and the two become one flesh. And it says the two of them were naked, and they weren't embarrassed. Any reflections on, on that second story of creation? Anything that hit you? In the, when 
God is, I thought I heard you use some um, pronouns for um, ha'adam that were masculine. Is that in the text? Yeah, the, the, in, in the CEB, they used they use him before um, they're separated. And I don't know if that's a, a misrendering of that. My guess is not, because I think they did a pretty good scholarly job. So I think, again, within the, the writer or whoever, there's this binary understanding of male and female. But what some fem female scholars have said is that there's not, that the ish and isha, which is male and female, the Hebrew word for male and female, are not introduced into the text until the, the woman, until the, the two become, one becomes two. Um, so yeah, there, there's some confusion in the interpretation as well. I love yeah. how it automatically just goes to, this is why yeah, uh -huh. this happens. Like, yeah. what? No, yeah. they just created these people, that's it. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and then, but then all of a sudden it's like, this is like, where did it talk about leaving father and mother? Like, yeah. mm, embracing his wife, even. Yeah. Where's that up there? Like, yeah. It jumps to it the just, It's mm -hmm. just like, here you go. <laughs> this yep. is what we think. Yep. Yep. I mean, I would say this is like the creation story of school. It's like, the, not the other one where it's like, oh, whatever. It's this one, and they're always like, see, she, she came out of his rib. She's such a good helper. Yeah, right. Like, it's like held up as like, that's like, that's why the women don't preach. Right. That's why the men preach. It's like right. held up as like the reason that women are yep. under men yep. is because she's such a good helper. Yep. And she came out of his rib. Yeah. Yep. yep. I don't know how a rib would be big enough to make another. Yeah, no, it's, it would be like, interesting to see that. It's the start of the movie. So, uh, Yeah, right. Part that yeah. feels like very much of a, a story yep. to tell to make sense of something. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. And some of the some of the early thoughts is that the whoever whoever wrote the first rendition was more of a, a legal person, and the person who wrote the second was more of a person of the land, uh, a fertile, you know, like it was written a little bit later, a farmer uh, kind of a thing. Um, the interesting thing that I, the thing that I, that sticks out to me in this passage is that they were naked and they were not ashamed. There was no there was no shame. Uh, no embarrassment. And, and I, I was thinking about the last time I had an image of me standing butt naked with somebody else or other people, God and creation. It was a nightmare. Has anybody had that nightmare? Right? Where all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, I am butt naked. And, and it's terrifying, right? It's terrifying because from the earliest parts of who we are, we associate being naked with shame. Being naked with being embarrassed. Being naked as something that you quickly want to cover up because it's not right. It's not good. And yet, this is part of the Bible that I think is good. That says, it's actually, they stood there naked before God and all creation. No shame. It was good. It was good. But in that dream, nobody notices you're naked. So yeah. <laughs> Until you notice. Until you notice. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that, that's interesting, isn't it? So it's all like self. It's just me doing this thing. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, on that yeah. topic, but I was going to comment on that anyway, the being unashamed part. Uh, when I when I went out west, where there is not as much of a taboo around nudity, mm -hmm. and there's clothing optional hot springs and clothing optional retreats that I went on for like two weeks. Yeah, or go to Germany. Yeah, yeah. or nude beaches in France. Right. You don't, Midwesterners or myself, born in the Midwest, I didn't realize how deep-rooted the shame of my nudity yeah. was. Yep, and then how tied that is to sexuality. Absolutely, I see a naked woman and I get aroused. Yeah, it's not normal. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a response to this deep repression. Yep, 
Yep. And so anytime you repress something that deeply and systematically, it has a way of coming out and usually not in the most healthy ways. That's why I say sometimes the way we express our sexuality is not necessarily healthy because we have been so suppressed for so long that we can allow our sexuality to come out in ways that aren't necessarily helpful for other people or for ourselves, aren't necessarily respectful, don't, don't engender more love and life and hope. Um, so we, just, we need to be recognizing that. It's sad, it's tragic, but that's, that's the deal. Our sexuality is basic to our identity. Uh, you can't be anything but a, a, a sexed person and, and whatever, whatever, however you define that. And, and that's beautiful and that's good. And the other thing is, is that that, um, that part of us, especially since we don't practice it much, we don't talk about it, is, um, is super, super vulnerable. Super vulnerable, right? Um, to be naked in that way, emotionally, relationally, physically, uh, is a way for you to connect with someone else in a way that is super intimate, um, spiritual. It, it transcends physical, spiritual, social. It, it opens ourselves up to be connected in a way that we're supposed to be connected because it's not good for us to be alone. We're made to be connected. And if you could be nakedly connected to somebody else and mutually love and affirm each other, it's like, ah, I mean, this is what, this is what it's all about. And it, I'm not saying it needs to be someone of the opposite gender. I don't even think it needs to be necessarily sexual, but to be able to be fully yourself, naked with somebody else, to be known and affirmed, it's like, oh, thank God. Have any of you had that experience? Where you finally connect with somebody like that and they see all your warts and they know all your stories and they still love you and you see theirs, it's like, oh my God, this feels right. That's, that's because that's the image of God. Go ahead. That's kind of like, I mean, our marriage is heteronormative. Mm-hmm. But when, I think that was a big shift because like people think, Oh, like we we lived together, we know each other forever, but I think there was a shift when we got married. Like it was like, I know it's just this legal thing, but it's it's like more safety. Hmm. And yeah. so, like I think when people want to um, define what marriage should look like, it's really unfair because everyone deserves that sort of that ability to find that yeah. that intimacy. And that, I think mm-hmm. it did. I mean, everybody's different, but I think it does change things. Yeah, I mean, back back in the day before we got repressed, we lived in very tight knit communities, yeah. and in the third world, they still do. They shit and fart and brush their teeth in front of each other. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. in America, we are so individualized yeah. that the only person that you share the remotest amount of intimacy with in that way is mm-hmm. your spouse. Yeah, that's so disconnected. Yeah, yeah, it's very sanitized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, the. Uh, one one of the the things that is um, that is important for this all though is to, is to recognize and to be able to talk about this stuff from a very young age and the and the problem is is that most of us don't right or if we do it's in one way <clears throat> that's typically not very helpful and sadly some of that teaching a lot of that teaching comes from from the church and our experience of religion um, and and uh, story that I'm going to tell and there, my daughter Clara is sitting over there and this is not this is not about her at all. Um, but as a young dad, I always thought I was pretty, like, I got it. Like, I'm, I'm going to be open. I'm going to be allow my children to be who they are and love them unconditionally. And I remember um, when when Stacy and I were early on in our relationship, she was full time in law school. I was working at a hospital, and so we kind of shared parenting duties. And Stacy would sometimes drop off in preschool and the, with our with our first child. And uh, and there's one time when I was going to pick up. And I remember I got there, and I got there a little early, and I was standing in the window, and I'm staring in at the, at the two-year-old class, the people, that, the kids that are just around two. 
And I'm looking in there, and you're, they're like at the cots out, you know, those kid-sized cots that are like this big, and they set them out, and they're lying down, and, and there was our daughter just like crashed, you know, like sweating, and had her little blankie on. I thought she was just adorable, and I'm sitting there just kind of looking at her, loving her, um, before I had to actually pick her up and parent her. Uh, <laughs> and the, the preschool teacher comes out and stands next to me, and we're kind of looking through the glass and, and talking about, oh, look at how, and these kids are just amazing. They're so beautiful. This is so great. And, um, and, and then as I sat there, I looked around, and I noticed some of the other kids weren't really sleeping. They were kind of lying in their cots, just kind of chilling. And then a number of them had their hands down in front of their pants. And, uh, and I was trying, like, not to notice, like, to be, you know, like, oh, let me look at the next kid. Oh, gosh, she's got her hand on her pants, too. And then finally I turned <laughs> to the preschool teacher. I'm like, so, like, what's going on with the whole hand on the pants? And she's like, totally nonplussed. She's like, oh, yeah, they, they do that. I mean, that's whether they're falling asleep or just waking up, it's a self-soothing, it's a comforting thing, it feels good, and that's, it's really, it's really kind of nice. It's a you know, self-engineered way for us to comfort ourselves. And, to, and, and I'm sitting there listening, trying to be like super woke. I'm like, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> She's like, all, all, you, you know, all kids do this. She was asking a preschool teacher, all, all kids touch themselves, they'll masturbate, they'll, and that's just, that's just normal. And, and there's something really beautiful about it. Now, there's some kids, she said, remember she told me, you know, there's some kids that will, um, you know, during playtime, will like rub themselves against somebody else because it feels good. And we got to say to Steve or Jorge or Maria or whatever, you know, no, we don't do that. You know, that we got to respect other people. And, but you, you teach that. You teach it in a loving context. You provide boundaries around it. And you say, this is how we touch ourselves, express ourselves. This is how we live as sexed children in a, in a space. And I remember just like, just my mind being blown, like theologically, everything. Because I don't, um, I don't know uh, about you guys, but I, I can remember, I don't know if it was, a, if it was a, a babysitter or my mom or my dad, I like to think it was a babysitter, uh, who at some point in my life, I did not get potty trained super early. I wasn't in my early teens, but I was, in, I, I was, I was a little bit older than most kids before I, I figured out how to not pee my pants. And so I remember being changed at one point, and I remember touching my penis, and getting whacked. Don't do that. And along with the smack came the shame. It wasn't just a, for some reason, hey, you've got dirt on your hands, so you're going to get your penis dirt. That wasn't it. It was, we just don't do that. And bam, I can still feel that slap. And, and I was reading a, 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 a female theologian who was talking about how, especially for women, but also for boys, that we have this generational trauma around shame and sexuality that that we impart from generation to generation. We wound each other from the youngest possible age. We wound our children and teach them to be ashamed of their sexuality, be ashamed of your vulva, be ashamed of your penis, be ashamed of your nocturnal emission, be ashamed of whatever, before we as adults even know we're doing it. You're changing a little guy, and he has a boner, and he's touching it, and you slap his hand. Why? Because somebody slapped your hand. And you associated from the time before you could even think that this is wrong and this erection is somehow dirty and touching it is more so. Not true. Normal. Self-soothing. Healthy. Right. Rubbing it up against somebody else? Maybe not so much. <laughs> but let's talk about that. How do, you, how do you respect each other and how do we grow as sex-gendered individuals in a way that we both honor our sexuality but also recognize none of us are going to be perfect in how we express it. All of us are going to be wounded in various ways. And so, yes, we've got to have some laws of love that surround and guide and help us to live into that in the fullest way so that we express most fully the image of God. Right? That loving, vulnerable, naked, 
an unashamed image of God that God would have for all of us in our relationships, in our sexuality, um, in our sexual partnerships. Um, finally, I, I want to share... Um, well, I, I want to get to the last part of, of the Bible and, and, and what it did. Uh, so I think in the, in the beginning, there's ways that you can find that the scriptures actually have a decent story to tell about who we are in our creation and it being good, um, being amazingly good. Um, but as I said, the, the, the tradition is that Moses wrote the first five books of the Pentateuch. And, um, and the interesting thing is that, that the, one of the first things, or the first thing that is written into the book of Genesis as we become a people, the, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition, um, that when we first um, kind of identify our God and go public with we are these people, we are this religious people, uh, the way that Moses says that Abraham, that God told Abraham to do that in Genesis chapter 17, this is how you are going to be marked as my religious people who follow after me and you're not like other people, you're clean, you're not dirty. You remember what that was? Circumcision. Circumcision. Cut your penis. Cut your penis. And, and Abraham does that. He cuts his penis, cuts his children's penis, cuts, cuts the male followers. So first of all, very gendered. right? So who can be a part of this? Men. What does it have to do with? Mutilating your sexual organ. So right away, like within the text, we see that we already take what is beautiful and natural and, and we say that to be more religious, you've got to cut this off. At least cut part of it off, right? And then we know that that translates, sadly, into um, circumcision for, for little girls and mutilation of girls' clitorises. So because the, the whole pleasure thing is not a, not a good thing and that's not, you know, so, and that very much tied into religious practice, whether it be Christian or, or, uh, or Islamic practices. Um, and then we know, of course, that migrates into our understanding of Christian leadership. Um, in, in, I think it was in, in the year 600 or so, one of our early popes made a decree that sexual um, fantasy, sexual thinking is a sin. So not even acting, but, and that was a decree made by the pope, and the words of the pope are, are then become law. Uh, and then it wasn't until the 11th century that Pope Gregory II uh, finally made the de- declaration um, at that point that all priests in order to become a priest, have to first take a vow of celibacy. And I think we all know how that has turned out. So our sexuality in the Bible is both supremely good and right and part of who we are. And also within the text itself, before you even get out of Genesis, you have got this cutting off of ourselves, denying of our sexuality, cutting of our genitalia so that we can be separated unto God, uh, which, which I think is wrong. The, the, the the, the thing that's good, again, there's good things in our texts and good things in our faith, is that as we kind of matured in, in our understanding of God and God's love for us, um, in, in the New Testament, if you're, if you're um, not familiar with this, we moved away from this practice of circumcision and cutting penises, uh, and we made instead baptism. And so the way that you mark yourselves now is not by mutilating your genitals, but through the waters, right, passing through the waters. What does that remind you of, right, of new birth? That everybody, male or female, anybody, we can be cleansed and marked with something that is pure from nature as God's own. And so that, that cleansing, that, that all-welcoming mark <laughs> that comes from, comes from nature and is gracious and, and is open to all is, is, a, is a move in the right direction. So this is what I would, I would suggest. If you are interested, if you're not, that's fine. 
But I would, I would encourage us to just, um, if you don't mind, come on up here. And if you're okay with it, uh, stand in kind of a half circle around here. And I want us to baptize each other and remind each other of how good we are, how fully known we are, and how exceptionally good we are, all of us, every part of us. Um, and I would like us to do that for each other. So if you're open to that, what I'm going to do is just, whoever is here and here, I'm just going to put water on your forehead and just say the words to you. You are, you are loved by God and you are exceptionally good. And then if you want to, you can then get the water and you can do that to the person next to you. And we can hear those words spoken to each one of us before we leave. Anybody into that? Come on up here. Friends, believe it. You're very good. You're exceptionally good. You're fully known and fully loved. Let us hopefully be empowered by that to take another ginger step into being a little more vulnerable and spreading that love and acceptance to others. There's something very intimate about that. Yeah. 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 It's a breaking through, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being willing to do that. That's intimate stuff. Thank you. And Maggie, thanks for your help. Hang out, go in peace, do what you need to do. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back next week. The woman that's actually going to be preaching, talking next week upstairs in here is a, uh, a woman who's a professor at St. Paul's School of Theology. Uh, she was married uh, to a man. She got divorced. It was not uh, a fun process. She was against marriage for a long time, thought it was really stupid, and then ended up getting married to a woman who's now married again. Is going to be talking about marriage. Is marriage really a thing anymore? Like, how do we understand marriage in the Bible? How do we understand marriage in contemporary society? So um, I think it'll be great. So I invite you back for that. Okay.